Hello to all you wonderful listeners out there. This is your Captain Wade speaking, and I'm joined once again by my executive officer and co-host, Will. Welcome back, everybody. Once again, we must apologize for the lateness of this episode. Unfortunately, when both of us are students with intensive degree paths, our studies must come first. But we're back and ready to have some fun. That's right. So... Just before we get started here with our topic of the day, we also want to acknowledge this. We're recording here on November 10th, which is a significant date in maritime history for us, especially here in the Midwest. Today marks the Edmund Fitzgerald disaster on Lake Superior. I assume you've heard about this, Will. I have. Yeah, so quick story. Obviously, we can dedicate this in our ship safety episode. We'll be talking a little bit about this, but... Quick story, the SS, Fit, uh, the SS Edmund Fitzgerald was a ore carrier that went down in a horrible storm on Lake Superior. 90 mile an hour gale winds, blizzard, the whole nine yards, 35 foot waves. It was not a pretty sight. For anyone that has not seen the Great Lakes in a storm, you could swear it was the North Atlantic. Yeah, the Great Lakes can be pretty crazy if, if it gets really stormy. Mm-hmm. However, today isn't going to be about the Fitz, like mm-hmm. I said, though I'm sure we could dedicate an episode to her at some point. Today, we're talking about ships of state. Now, when one hears this term, a lot of people might be scratching their heads. Ship of state? Does that mean it carries the president or something? Well, one who thinks that might be onto something, but the reality is much different. We're talking, we're taking a trip in time back to the era of superliners in ocean liner history. Superliners were their own breed of ocean liner that were bigger than anything else that had been seen in the passenger trade up until that point. We'll be talking about two very specific ships of this breed in our ship of the week later on. But Will, what does it really mean when we say ship of state? So that term can take on several meanings depending on what type of ship we're talking about. But today's episode is about ocean liners, ships of state. And this is a ship that was really seen as the flagship of that particular country's merchant marine. It was really a a symbol to the rest of the world of what that country was capable of building as an engineering society. It was also a symbol of that country's fashion leadership in terms of the interior and exterior design of the ship and the comfort of its appointments, um, and particularly for countries that were on the Atlantic and participated in the Atlantic trade, ships of state were really important for national prestige, and they were always trying to outdo each other. They were trying to build bigger ships, faster ships, more luxurious ships, and it was a constant competition. We mentioned in a previous episode the Blue Rabond of the Atlantic, which was the transatlantic speed record. Oftentimes, ships of state would try to compete for that record, not always, but often they would. Um, And so really, it was just basically the best that a country could put together at a particular time. Often, these ships of states were nationally subsidized projects for various reasons, although they were always operated by private companies. Oftentimes, the government would chip in money, and we'll, we'll talk about that during this week's episode. But they were not actually members of their respective countries' navies, except in times of war when they were taken over as troop ships, another, another thing we'll talk about. Um, the term can also be used in other contexts. 
sometimes a ship of state is a term that's used for a, a naval vessel that's used as a flag bearer for the country. In fact, actually, the United States currently has an official ship of state, which is the frigate USS Constitution, has been our official ship of state for about five years, I think, not that long. So, uh, but typically in the old days, it was the most glamorous and um, most spectacular passenger ship that a country could put together. And I should say this, that the subsidies or loans that we were talking about, that Will mentioned earlier, these were controversial at best. And yeah. especially in later cases with the SS France that we mentioned in one of our previous episodes, the SS France had a heavy government subsidy on it, and this was fought by the French legislature and the French people. It was scary, actually, how much resistance there was to this, and ultimately that subsidy being pulled is what retired the France permanently. Yeah, and I mean, you can think about any big project that the government takes on these days, always has some pushback if people don't see it as something that's necessary. Sometimes critics of these ships of state would see them as kind of superfluous vanity projects that, you know, didn't really need national funds. During the Great Depression, which is when both of our ships of state were built, they actually kind of functioned as job programs and helped put a lot of people back to work. So in, in some respects, they actually were beneficial spending choices. But in, in times when government funds are tight, sometimes people think, should we really be spending our money on this as opposed to something that's maybe more important? Yes. And just a key thing, when we're, when we're talking about government, uh, government assistance, we're not, we're not talking that the, uh, that the government, like Will said, they aren't owned by the government. That's a key thing. It's still private companies that, that own and operate these ships. And that continues uh, even, to this, even to this day, such as, now this isn't the this isn't the maritime trade, but Amtrak, for instance, Amtrak hmm. is the rail, the rail company that runs passenger service in the United States. And another example is um, airlines are often nationally subsidized. And a, a particularly notable example is some of the UAE airlines like Etihad are heavily subsidized by their governments. And that's why their planes are so fancy. I didn't know that. But, yep. and also, uh, Will alluded to this in a previous episode. The Concorde got those funds that the that were pulled from the France. So the Concorde wouldn't have been able to happen unless the French government chipped in, because yep. a supersonic transport uh, was extremely expensive. I'm pretty sure the British government also chipped in on that project as well. Yeah, it was not a cheap project, and there's a reason that airlines are a little hesitant about that now. Plus, you know, the Concorde kind of, you know, crashed. <laughs> so, but in any case, the first one that we're going to, <clears throat> my apologies. Will, your, your ship was laid down first, your ship of the week. So I yeah. think it's only fair that you tell us about your ship of the week first. I think our listeners want to hear about this one. Sure. So our, our first ship of the week is one that a lot of people are probably pretty familiar with. I think next to the ill-fated and much overhyped Titanic, I think this is probably the most famous ocean liner uh, just because she had such a distinguished career and because she's still with us and a ship that you can visit today, which is pretty cool. 
And uh, this, of course, is Her Majesty the RMS Queen Mary, which was for many years really the flagship of the British Merchant Marine and uh, continues to be open to the public as a hotel and museum in Long Beach, California, not far from where I grew up. Um, and this ship has a really fascinating history. I think she deserves to be more famous than the Titanic because unlike the Titanic, she did her job and didn't sink and um, also was a war hero. We'll talk about that too. But anyway, the story of the Queen Mary is pretty interesting. So the Queen Mary was originated by the Cunard Line, which was at the time one of two major British transatlantic passenger shipping companies. One was the Cunard Line, the other was the White Star Line. And there were other British transatlantic companies like the Anchor Line, the Atlantic Transport Line, Canadian Pacific was Canadian, but still part of the British Empire. Um, but White Star and Cunard were really like the first class, you know, top of the line ones with the biggest and fastest ships. And these two companies were rivals of each other and then also rivals of foreign companies. And uh, typically, White Star went for bigger and more luxurious ships and Cunard went for faster ships. And so Cunard had their other really famous liner, the Mauritania, which um, had the blue ribbon, which she, I think, first captured in, I want to say, 1906 or 1907. And the Mauritania held that transatlantic speed record until 1929, when it was taken by a German superliner called the Bremen. And the Bremen was one of two twins, the Bremen and the Europa, built by the Norddeutscher Lloyd, or the North German Line. And those two ships were really kind of the symbols of recovery of Germany after World War I. And they were really considered the first modern, true superliners in, in the modern sense. And so these ships took the speed record from the Mauritania, and they also took the record as the largest ocean liners in the world. And so by this point, um, Cunard's fleet included the Mauritania, the Aquitania, which was a larger but slower follow-on to the Mauritania, and then a third ship called the Berengaria, which they had taken from the Germans as a reparation after World War I. But all three of these ships were starting to get kind of old, and all of them were way outclassed by the Bremen and the Europa. So Cunard was really kind of losing its status as the premier company on the Atlantic. So they decided to do something about this, and they began a project to build their own superliner to take back the speed record from the Bremen and the Europa. And originally, this design was kind of a super Aquitania. Some of the older original designs for this ship looked pretty old-fashioned. And eventually, over the course of the design of the ship, they decided to kind of update it. But ultimately, the ship was ordered in 1929, and she was laid down on December 1st, 1930. Now, you might, as you guys probably all know, the Great Depression started in October 1929. So this was not great timing for this project. The project was known only by its whole number, whole number 534. And so, however, uh, Cunard, their fortunes really took a hit due to the Great Depression. And so eventually they ran out of money for the project. They originally were trying to completely self-fund whole number 534. What ended up happening was in 1931, they were forced to, to suspend construction of the ship. And so this giant ocean liner sat half finished on the stocks on the Clyde at John Brown's shipyard, a very famous shipyard that built a lot of other really important ships for a long time. And so this kind of became a symbol of the depression to people that, wow, we've got this giant half finished ocean liner. All the people that were trying to build it are out of work. 
you know, this is, this is just showing a, a very visible symbol of how stagnant everything is. Well, the British government didn't really like this, and it turned out that the French were working on a similar project, which Wade will talk about soon. And uh, this French project, although it started after the Queen Mary, um, or what would become the Queen Mary, whole number 534, <laughs> um, more quickly, and uh, had not been paused. And so the British realized that if they allowed the French to finish their project without finishing their own, they would be even further behind in the transatlantic you know, race for prestige. And so finally, the British government stepped in and they went over to Cunard Lines and they, they basically cut them a deal. They said, we will help you finance finishing this ship on the condition that you merge with the White Star Line. Now, the White Star Line was in even worse shape than Cunard at this point. They had been working on their own superliner project, the Oceanic 3, but the Oceanic 3 was not even as far along as hole number 534. They'd only just started to build it. And so the, the British government decided that the economy could not support two of these superliner projects and they needed to just merge. So Cunard accepted. Um, they kind of took over White Star Line. Um, it was a, a formally a merger of equals, kind of like Daimler Chrysler, but everybody knew that Cunard was really in charge, kind of like Daimler. And so this became, the, the combined company became known as the Cunard White Star Line. And construction on hole number 534 then resumed. And um, so that um, continued, that process continued. And then in 1934, the ship was finally launched and, and um, began the process of completion. Now, this, was, this is where the name of the ship comes in. So Cunard ships always ended their names with IA, like Mauritania, Lusitania, Berengaria, Aquitania, etc. White Star Line ships always ended their names with IC, like Olympic, Titanic, Britannic. And uh, because this was a newly merged company, they realized that they uh, needed to come up with a new naming convention because if they picked one or the other, it would show that one of the companies was dominant. And so Sir Percy Bates, who was in charge of Cunard at the time, I always kind of, if you guys are fans of Thomas the Tank Engine, I kind of always imagine him as Cunard's equivalent of Sir Topham Hat. But anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sir Percy Bates uh, approached King George V of the United Kingdom with a proposal to name the ship after England's greatest queen. And he was talking about Queen Victoria. And this is, this is how the story goes. Some people dispute this. I like to believe that it's true. Anyway, people think he was talking about Queen Victoria. And if you think about that, that's a sneaky way for Cunard to stay in charge because Victoria ends in IA, like the Cunard you know, tradition. But anyway, he didn't specify that. So he says to King George V, I would like to name this ship after England's greatest queen. And King George V says, my wife would be delighted. And so <laughs> that made the decision for Sir Percy Bates. And so instead of becoming the Queen Victoria, the ship was thus named the Queen Mary after Mary of Tech, King George V's wife. So the ship was named the Queen Mary, went down the ways and entered service in 1936, one year after her French rival, which we'll talk about next. And uh, she and this, this French ship kind of traded back and forth on the Blue Ribbon, the, the speed record, a couple of times. But eventually in 1938, the Queen Mary took the speed record for good. Now, compared to the Normandy, her French competitor, the Queen Mary was a much more traditional looking design. Um, although they had updated the original 1920s design a little bit, she was still some people considered her to be behind the times appearance wise. She was not as streamlined 
as the Normandy or the Bremen or the Europa. She was a lot more upright, but she was very stately. And so a lot of people called her the stateliest ship afloat. Her interiors were also not as avant-garde and flamboyant as the French ships. They had a lot of wood paneling inside. In fact, she had, I believe, 56 different varieties of wood paneling from all parts of the British Empire inside. So they really, she was very nicely decorated, but it wasn't as ornate or over the top as, as the French competition. But even though she wasn't, you know, she didn't look like a movie set on the inside, a lot of people found her a little bit more comfortable and more reassuring and more familiar than some of the really futuristic designs that were being used in other ships. And in fact, the Normandy, her competitor, which Wade will talk about next, in some cases was considered so avant-garde and so ostentatious that it was almost sort of in bad taste to travel on that ship because it was still the middle of the Great Depression. Much like a lot of luxury car manufacturers went out of business in the Great Depression, like Duesenberg, because people didn't really feel like they could be seen in something that over the top, um, the Normandy faced some of that headwinds a little bit. Queen Mary didn't have that much of a problem. And it's a, I believe it's a fact that the Queen Mary was the only ocean liner to reliably turn a profit during the Great Depression years. So she was an immediate success for her owners. The ship was huge. She was 1,019 feet long. Um, she was 81,000 tons and she had over 200,000 shaft horsepower in her engine installations, which these were astronomical figures for the 1930s. The Queen Mary is one of four classic ocean liners, five if you include the QM2, that are over 1,000 feet in length. And she and her, her French competitor, the Normandy, were the first two to go over that figure. So anyway, she was an immediate success in the 1930s, but as we know, war clouds were looming on the horizon. And um, her last passage across the Atlantic to the United States before World War II was absolutely packed to the gills. Now, while this was going on, Cunard White Star decided that they needed to build a second ship to run with the Queen Mary. The idea being that if they had two ships capable of the 31 knot speed that the Queen Mary was capable of, they could run a weekly transatlantic service with just two ships. Before that, they had needed three ships. And at first, the Queen Mary was in service alongside the Aquitania and the Berengaria. The Berengaria was getting old, so was the Aquitania, and so they decided to replace those two ships with one new one of the same or similar design to the Queen Mary. This ship was basically a modified version of the Queen Mary's design, slightly bigger. She had two funnels instead of three and a more streamlined design inspired partially by the Normandy. And this ship became the Queen Elizabeth, which was the Queen Mary's famous running mate. When World War II broke out, the Queen Mary was immediately taken in hand by the Royal Navy and requisitioned for service as a troop ship. The Queen Elizabeth was completed in 1940 when the war had already begun. At the time, she was the largest ship in the world and thus a prime target for Nazi Germany's armed forces. When the Queen Elizabeth was first uh, dispatched on her, her first mission, it was a secret as to what her destination was. This is, I, I love this story. So her captain was given a sealed envelope by the Royal Navy with instructions to open it once the ship was at sea and inside the envelope was his destination. So he didn't know where they were going when they left. What ended up happening was the Royal, the Royal Navy spread misinformation that the Queen Elizabeth was bound for Southampton, which was England's primary port, and would be passing through a body of water called the Solent, which is an estuary south of Southampton. 
in reality, when the captain of the Queen Elizabeth opened the envelope, it told him he was in, he was ordered to proceed to New York as fast as possible at the ship's top speed, which he did and went a different way, not through the Solent. The next morning, when the Queen Elizabeth was supposed to be in the Solent, German bombers were flying overhead waiting for her. But because she did not actually go through there, they were unable to sink the Queen Elizabeth. New York did not know that the Queen Elizabeth was coming because this was a complete secret. And so a few days later, the world's largest ship shows up unannounced in New York Harbor, <laughs> leading to lots of intrigue. Um, and what ended up happening was the, the Queen Elizabeth tied up next to the Queen Mary and the Normandy. And it was the only time for a two week period that these three ships were all together. Um, and so there's a famous picture showing the three of them next to each other. And it's interesting to be able to kind of make out the details. So anyway, the Queen Mary went on to serve in World War II as a troop ship in many different theaters of the war. She was, she was in the Pacific, she was in the Atlantic. Um, her first operation was to transport troops from Australia to the North African theater. And so uh, there was, she did a lot of service in the Indian Ocean at that time. She was repainted in a military gray paint scheme, which made her very difficult to see, especially in the North Atlantic. And so she got the nickname, the Gray Ghost, because of this. Because of her 31 knot top speed, she was capable of outrunning German U-boats and their torpedoes. And thus she was one of the few ships that could, um, could sail unescorted. And so she didn't have to sail, but she sometimes did. Um, on one tragic occasion, she was escorted by a British cruiser called the Curaçao, which had been modified as an anti-aircraft cruiser. And due to a miscommunication, um, they were, they were doing a zigzag pattern to try to avoid submarines. It, that's where you basically sail in a zigzag formation, and that's supposed to throw off enemy radar and submarines. So she was doing this and uh, with the Curaçao, and they did not communicate properly, and the Curaçao crossed in front of the Queen Mary, and at 31 knots, the giant ship, the Queen Mary, sliced through the Curaçao, cut her in half, and kept going. She was under orders not to stop for any reason, so she did not stop to pick up the survivors. And so I believe the Curaçao went down with all hands, which was really tragic. So anyway, um, however, these, these two ships, the Queen Mary and the Queen Elizabeth, had an absolutely prodigious troop carrying capacity. The Queen Mary set an all-time record where she carried, I believe, 16,800, or slightly in change, so slightly more than that, 16,800 troops on one trip. Um, which was just mind boggling. So these ships were each capable of transporting an entire division just by themselves. And they were instrumental for bringing over the troops that would eventually conduct the D-Day operations in 1944. Because of their contributions to the Allied war effort, Winston Churchill credited the Queen Elizabeth and the Queen Mary with single-handedly, just those two ships, single-handedly shortening World War II by a year. So if you can imagine how many lives were saved by shortening World War II by a year, you get an idea of, you know, what the Queen Mary's contribution to world history was. She had a couple of other interesting features. She was the first ocean liner built with a synagogue on board. And this was a, a move that was deliberately made to annoy the Nazis um, <laughs> when she was built. Uh, so that was another interesting feature that she had. After World War II ended, she, her first job was to help repatriate war brides, um, who were, which were people that had married American servicemen when they were abroad in Europe. And so that was her first big mission. And then she was restored and put back in service after the war. And um, 
This, of course, was a major undertaking because the ship had been pretty thoroughly trashed during her World War II service. Just to put things in perspective, in order to cram that many people on board the ship, they had bunk beds stacked in the ship's dining room that were eight-level bunk beds. Um, so if you've ever slept in a bunk bed with a sibling or something and you had two, imagine if you had six more on top of that, and that's what was on the Queen Mary. Um, so they had to do a lot of repair work and restoration, but she re-entered service in the late 1940s and once again was the premier ship on the North Atlantic run along with the Queen Elizabeth. And these two ships basically ruled the Atlantic unopposed for the rest of the 1940s and into the early 1950s when next week's ship of the week appeared to take the transatlantic speed record from the Queen Mary, but that's a story for another time. The Queen Mary did continue to serve throughout the 1950s and into the 1960s, but as we've mentioned before, 1958 was the turning point for transatlantic steamship travel. That was the year when the jet airliner entered service, much to our chagrin. After this, the transatlantic passenger numbers on the ships began to steadily decline, and um, it just got worse and worse and worse. And so finally, Cunard line, and, and eventually, this was telling, eventually Cunard dropped the White Star from the name. The last White Star line ship, the Britannic, went out of service in the mid-1960s, and after that, it was just back to being Cunard. They still retain White Star as their term for their service academy, so they claim that all of their waiters and stuff have gone through White Star service, um, but that's kind of the last vestige of the White Star line. So anyway, the Queen Mary um, soldiered on until 1967 when the Cunard line decided that they could no longer afford to keep her in service. And so their plan was to retire uh, the Queen Mary and the Queen Elizabeth and replace them with a new ship, which we've talked about before, and that became the QE2 or the Queen Elizabeth II. And uh, she entered service in 1969. The Queen Mary retired in 1967, and the Queen Elizabeth retired in 1968. But this was not the end of the story for the Queen Mary, remarkably, because usually when ocean liners retire, that's it, um, unless they get sold on and kind of do have secondhand lives, which happen to a lot of smaller ships. But usually these big ships of state, they didn't want them going into, quote unquote, enemy hands. So generally they would get scrapped when um, they ended their service. This did not happen to the Queen Mary for several reasons. She had such a loyal following and um, was such a, a well-beloved ship that a lot of people didn't want to see her go. And so Cunard offered her as a basically a museum ship to any city willing to pay the money required to get her there and then do the conversion. Oddly enough, Long Beach, California, of all places, decided that they had the money and the reason for this is, and you know, nowadays a lot of people would scratch their heads at this, but at the time Long Beach had a huge oil industry. And so they had like a lot of oil money lying around for this. And so they were, Long Beach was kind of California's Saudi Arabia at the time. Um, and hmm. so they had cash lying around for this. So they won the bid. And uh, in order to get the Queen Mary to Long Beach, the initial plan was to take her through the Panama Canal. But then somebody thought, you know, put on their thinking cap and they realized, wait a minute, the Queen Mary is too big to go through the Panama Canal. So they decided to organize a giant last great cruise where the Queen Mary sailed from Southampton, England, around Cape Horn at the very bottom of South America, and then back up to Long Beach. She was commanded on this last voyage by 
her captain, who has, in my opinion, the best name of a sea captain ever, Captain Treasure Jones. That's actually his name. Um, anyway, uh, Treasure Jones was also the, the captain of the ship when on probably the Queen Mary's most emotional uh, moment, which was when, uh, so typically when the Queen Mary and the Queen Elizabeth were, were in service together, they would start on opposite ends of the Atlantic and pass halfway in, like, in the middle um, on their way. And that's how they maintain their weekly service. And so whenever the ships passed each other, it was always a big deal. They would blast their horns at each other. Um, they would get really close so that you could see them, you know, going screaming past each other. And they would basically race past each other at the equivalent speed of 70 miles an hour. So if you can imagine two 1,000 foot long ships barreling towards each other at the combined speed of 70 miles an hour, you can imagine, you know, what's going on here. So the last time that that happened was in the middle of the night on the Queen Mary's last, and I think 1,000th transatlantic crossing. And um, basically they, they made it one to remember there was horns and booming and everything and everybody lined the railings to watch. And a lot of people said we, that they knew right then when that happened, that it was the end of the era and that nothing like that would ever happen again. Um, so anyway, uh, Treasure Jones got the ship to California and then this, and she was escorted in by hundreds of small yachts and stuff that came out to welcome her to Long Beach. She pulled into Long Beach and then Captain Treasure Jones issued the order, stop engines, which was kind of the last final, it's really over note for the Queen Mary. And he said that he got pretty emotional when he had to do that. So after she made it to Long Beach, it was time to convert the Queen Mary into a hotel. And in order to do this, she actually lost her status as a ship and is technically considered by the city of Long Beach to be a building. Um, they removed all of her engines and boilers and they removed all but one of her propellers. The funnels were actually removed because they were heavily corroded and were replaced with replicas. So the funnels that's on the ship now are not the original, but they are replicas. Um, and the ship has now been in service as a hotel for 50 years, which is pretty cool. She's actually been in Long Beach longer than her actual career lasted and um, has paid host to many millions of people. Unfortunately, uh, she's not in the best shape at the moment. And uh, she has a new owner, Urban Commons, which got the lease for the ship from the city of Long Beach a few years ago. And they're trying to, to do something about the ship's condition. She's had a lot of deferred maintenance over the years. And so their first big step was to repaint the ship. Um, but much to the chagrin of ocean liner enthusiasts like us, they picked the wrong shade of red for the ship's funnels, um, ah. and that, which is really frustrating. And um, the paint in many places is already starting to peel off, which is not good. So they're going to have to do something about that. They just estimated that it's going to take five to seven million dollars to do the repairs on uh, some of the structural aspects of the ship. So we're just hoping that they're able to do that because, you know, we really need to keep the Queen Mary around for future generations uh, because we don't want what happened to the Queen Elizabeth to happen to her. So kind of as a side note, the Queen Elizabeth originally had a similar arrangement. She was sent to uh, Port Everglades near Miami, Florida, but um, the Florida humidity was not kind to her. And um, eventually she, she was kind of failed as a business in that area and was sold on to C.Y. Tung, who was a Taiwanese, I think, or Hong Kong, one of the two, I think Taiwanese, um, ship owner. And he tried to convert her into a ship called C.Y.'s University, which was, a, which was spelled like S-E-A-W-I-S-E, 
but it was a, a secret stealth pun because his name was C.Y. So it was like C.Y.'s university. Um, anyway, he was trying to convert her into a floating school. Uh, but then once she made it to Taiwan, something happened. And there's a, a big debate as to what exactly was the cause of this and lots of conspiracy theories. But the, uh, a fire started and the Queen Elizabeth rolled over um, and burned and eventually capsized because of all the water pumped into her. And so nowadays, I think this was in Hong Kong Harbor that this happened. And nowadays, um, actually, pieces of the Queen Elizabeth are still underneath where oh, parts oh. of Hong Kong had built over where she was, which is kind of crazy. And then the other sort of remaining piece of the Queen Elizabeth, I have no idea why it's there. But Torrance, California, which is a, a neighboring town to where the Queen Mary is currently located and next door to where I grew up, for some reason, the Q and the E from the Queen Elizabeth's nameplate are on display in front of like a random building in Torrance. So they're there. I have no idea why they're there, but it's interesting. <laughs> um, and so the Queen Mary is now one of four remaining classic superliners that exist in the world. The others being the Rotterdam, it's not really a superliner, but close. She was a ship of state. Um, the United States, the QE2, and of course, our ship of the week, the Queen Mary. So that's the story of the Queen Mary. Many people called her the stateliest ship afloat. Um, I think in terms of overall career and achievement and contribution to world history, the Queen Mary has got to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest of the liners. There were other ships that were better, you know, that were better or more impressive in certain aspects. But if you kind of add it all together, it's, it's really hard to beat the Queen Mary. She was just such a fixture in um, just, just the cultural mindset of the entire era. And to this day, a lot of people still use her to compare to things. Like they'll say, oh, that's even bigger than the Queen Mary or that's longer than the Queen Mary. People still think about what that means. And I'm also grateful to these two sister ships because my grandpa immigrated to the United States as a passenger on the Queen Elizabeth. So um, that we have a little bit of a family connection to these two ships. So that's my ship of the week. And next we're going to hear about the oft mentioned and completely unforgettable French rival to the Queen Mary, the incomparable Normandy. Yes. Ma chère mademoiselle, it is with deepest pride and greatest pleasure that we welcome you tonight. And now, <laughs> we invite you to relax. Let us pull up a chair as the podcast proudly presents The Normandy. Oh, I've been waiting to talk about The Normandy for some time now. Will knows this, and some of our listeners might know this, but the SS Normandy is my favorite ship. Not even just my favorite liner, but my favorite ship, period. This ship was a beauty, but a tragic beauty, as we'll find out. The Normandy was laid down in 1932 by the CGT, or the Compagnie Générale Transatlantique, or to our English speakers, just the French line. Her maiden voyage would come in 1935, powered by a steam turbo electric drive. Now, a turbo electric drive is where each propeller is powered by an electric motor but those electric motors derive power from generators attached to steam turbines. And the turbines, of course, are fed steam by boilers. This gave the Normandy excellent speed control and an innovative hull design meant that despite her 1,029 foot length, 
and a beam of 117 feet, she was extremely fast, fast enough to challenge the Queen Mary on several occasions. Fast enough that she, again, traded the blue ribbon with, with the Queen Mary on a regular basis. I think it's worth noting, too, that, you know, the, the Normandy was roughly equivalent speed-wise to the Queen Mary, but did all of it with only two-thirds of the horsepower. So that yes. tells you something about how, you know, how good her design was. The Normandy had a lovely exterior with three large funnels and sweeping, curvaceous lines all over and a cruiser stern that seemed to defy logic at the time. However, her interiors were where the Normandy really shined. Her Art Deco interiors were spacious, luxurious, and timeless in design. The Normandy also benefited from a split uptake designed to her funnels, where the smoke draft was pulled to the sides of the ship before meeting back up at the centerline funnels. This gave her interiors a ballroom-esque quality that was Staggering. The first class dining hall alone was 305 foot long, a third of the length of the ship nearly. For perspective, it's for you tourists, mirrors in Versailles. I was just about to say that actually. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. This ship was class plus in a way that is still staggering today. Unfortunately, all these luxuries came at a cost. The Normandy was a notorious underperformer in ticket sales, especially given she was built during the era of the Great Depression. Her accommodations and amenities were heavily skewed toward first-class passengers with little room left for second and third and tourist-class passengers. Despite them having a lower cost, these lower classes were where the ocean liners continued to make their money in the interwar years people flocked to the Queen Mary's more restrained and less intimidating interior design, and the Normandy struggled to find her niche in the lead up to World War II in Europe. A bright side to this was that while the Normandy required a government loan to build her, she did not require subsidies in her career to balance the books. The same couldn't be said for similar German and Italian ships. However, the tragedy of the Normandy was yet to come. When war was declared by the United States on Japan and their allies, including Germany, the Normandy had sought refuge in New York Harbor at the time, fearing that if she returned to France, she would be seized by the Nazi government and used against them. The U.S. government seized the Normandy over vehement objections by the captain the U.S. Coast Guard detachment assigned to the ships removed the officers and crew of the Normandy, including the captain. In the process of seizing the ship, however, they disabled the Normandy's innovative and effective fire control system. This will come back later. Ugh. After tossing ideas around, the U.S. government settled on using the Normandy as a troop ship, renamed USS Lafayette after the French general who gave aid to General Washington during the American Revolution, the conversion process began. However, February 9th, 1942, sparks from a welding torch started a blaze that the conversion crew could not contain. Within hours, the whole ship was ablaze, with New York Fire Department unable to lend aid because the inlets for the fire control system aboard Normandy were not the right size. Metrics versus English system of measurement, folks. 
fire ships, pouring water onto the blaze seemed to be the only option. However, seeming salvation seemed to come when the designer of the Normandy, Vladimir Jokovic, who was in New York at the time, arrived on the scene. As he came on the scene, the Normandy had taken a dangerous list to port. Jorkovich knew immediately how to fix the list and to save the ship ultimately, but he was barred from helping by the Navy and Harbor Police, being told it was none of his business. Jorkovich was forced to watch as his magnum opus, the Mademoiselle of the French, capsized ablaze. Mm. The Normandy would remain on her side like that. This is the real insult to injury. The Normandy would remain on her side like that until the end of the war, when she was finally refloated, but by then all her systems were corroded by seawater. Her funnels and superstructure were cut away on site and then was sent to a scrapyard nearby. Thus ended the most beautiful ship ever. To say that the French were mad post-war was an understatement. Will reminded me of this the other day. This is still why the French will not allow models of the Normandy to be produced in the American market. We bungled yeah. things so bad that they're still mad almost 90 years later. Lesson for my fellow Americans, don't wreck other people's stuff. <laughs> my grandmother actually had the opportunity to see the Normandy on its side. She, she saw it from a car when she was driving through New York as a child, and she said she never forgot what it looked like. And uh, she was re reminiscing about that with me a few years ago. Um, so it was just an absolutely haunting sight. The, the Normandy was truly a one-of-a-kind ship. And unlike the, uh, the Queen Mary, who had her running mate, the, uh, the Queen Elizabeth, the Normandy never ran with any sort of running mate. She was truly one of a kind. And when I say that she was Vladimir Yorkovich's magnum opus, I'm not lying about that. It was, honestly, I wish I could track down the, uh, the builder's model that he built with his own hand to demonstrate the, aer the hydrodynamic hull that this ship had. When Will, uh, when Will, uh, alluded to the idea that she used two-thirds of the horsepower to achieve the same speed. Basically, it was all in her hull design. Her hull design was so advanced that it allowed her to make up that speed difference with objectively less horsepower to her four screws. It was truly amazing what she could be doing. And you can still see influences on her design in ships today. In fact, the QM2 of the Cunard line today, the Queen Mary 2, is actually, actually has almost the exact same stern as the, as the Normandy. It is the same cutouts, practically the same shape. I mean, it's really not surprising when they were built in the same shipyard, but yeah. the influence is staggering. She also had a big influence on the QE2 as well. And most people notice that both of Cunard's later superliners, the QE2 and the QM2, owe a lot more to the Normandy than they do to the Queen Mary. And although I don't know where the builder's model is either, I'm sure it exists somewhere, the Queen Mary has paid homage to her great rival, the Normandy, with a spectacular 16-foot-long model of the Normandy on the ship 
which you can see, it is a half model with a cutaway. And on the other side, on the cutaway side, all of her interiors are reproduced in meticulous detail. It took one guy, Father Perone, 22 years to make this model, but he did it. And uh, it's just absolutely spectacular. So it, you know, if you see that model, it's kind of like a little bit of the Normandy has come back to life. And there are, the, the one good thing about what happened to her in New York was that most of her interior furniture and fittings had already been removed when that happened. And so a lot of the Normandy's artwork and furniture still exists. Um, the, I think one of the cruise ships that's active now, I forget which one, has like a Normandy restaurant that has a lot of Normandy's stuff in it. But of course, it's not quite the same, but there are bits and pieces that live on. It just makes me sick every time I see pictures of the of the Normandy burning or on her side. It it physically hurts for ocean liner enthusiasts like the two of us. It physically hurts. There were so many interesting. Go ahead. There were so many opportunities to do right by the ship, and the Navy bungled it. Like I said, at every single opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a sort of an interesting aside to all of this is um, one of the fire boats that was assigned to help fight the fire on the Normandy and, of course, ended up pumping in too much water was a fire boat called the John J. Harvey. And uh, John J. Harvey was one of the New York City you know, Fire Department's fire boats, and she was in service for many years but was eventually retired. And um, they were going to scrap the ship. But a group of volunteers got together and raised enough money to buy and restore the fireboat and turn it into a museum. So they did that. Well, lo and behold, a few years after this, something terrible happens in New York City on September 11th, 2001. And, you know, the Twin Towers come down and a fire needs to be fought. Well, at this point, there were two remaining fireboats in the city of New York, one of which was the firefighter designed by William Francis Gibbs, who designed next week's Ship of the Week which was still in service at this point. And there was another one called the McKean. But those two firefighter boats alone were not enough to fight the fire in the Twin Towers. And so they called up the volunteer group that owned the John J. Harvey and they said, hey, you guys have a functional fireboat. We need you. And so for one day on one of the darkest days in American history, the John J. Harvey returned to service and fought the fires on the Twin Towers for I think something like 48 hours and so one of the boats that had helped try to fight the fire in the Normandy once again, you know, had the opportunity to serve, which was pretty cool. And I think that ship's still around. That is pretty neat. And I think we can leave this with just understanding that the line, the liner era has lost some amazing examples of these ships of state. And unfortunately, we're going to have to end that because I can hear the water coming back into the dry dock. I know we're looking forward to the next week's episode because we are both excited to, to flex our American muscle on that episode. <laughs> America finally gets a chance to have a ship of state of its own. So it's coming, guys. It's coming. All right. We, are, uh, we will say goodbye for now. Uh, stay safe, everyone. Bon voyage.